Well, if we were sitting down at a meal or grabbing coffee, one of the questions that I love to ask people to get to know them is, what has been one of or one of the one or two top defining moments or days in your life? Like what have been one of the most defining moments or times in your life? Well, since I'm the one talking, I guess I have to share. Thank you for asking. For me, if you were to ask me that question, my mind would go to a few different places, but one of the places that would go to is August 26, 2007 in the city of Chicago. And it was a hot, muggy day, and it was the day of the Moody Church picnic. The church picnic. I was here early helping Pastor Mark move all the supplies out. I remember I manned the grills for a period of time, trying not to let my sweat drip off of my brow onto the burgers, but actually onto the grill next to it so it doesn't contaminate any of the food. We helped serve over a thousand of our church family who were out there together. I helped clean up. Um, and then a couple of my friends were headed off to, to go to college. It's the season where college students were headed out. I was um, going into my senior year of college at the, at the time. And we left Lincoln Park and we went over to this Starbucks, a 24-hour Starbucks right here at North and Wells. And I walked in with my group of friends and there she was, my wife who was supposed to come to the church picnic but was late and so ended up just meeting us at Starbucks. And I met my wife at the Starbucks just a block from our church. And we started dating several months later and have been married for over eight and a half years now. And it's amazing, isn't it, how we wake up some moments. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> that was more for her, right? Like, how could she put up with this guy for that long? Oof, she deserves a round of applause, right? We wake up sometimes and we don't always know, right, when a defining or turning point in our life will be. But today we're going to look at the defining moment, the turning point in the life of Jacob. If you have your Bibles with you tonight, I encourage you to open them to Genesis chapter 32. Um, our entire text for tonight will also, um, you'll find in the handout that you received when you came in tonight. And this these 10, 11 verses that we look at tonight are the defining moment of Jacob's life. Now, he doesn't leave here perfect, right? Jacob's been into a lot of trouble. If you've been following with us this fall, we've gone through the life of Isaac and Jacob. You've seen all of the trouble that Jacob's gotten himself into. He doesn't leave this situation as a totally perfect individual with no problems, but he does leave changed, so to set us up on where we are at, earlier on in the book of Genesis, Jacob deceived his brother both from getting the birthright from him and then deceived him into getting the blessing from his father. And Jacob has run away from home, his brother Esau threatening to kill him. 20 years later, God has blessed Jacob richly in every way possible, but God has called him to go back home to the land. And last week we looked as Jacob started to head back down towards the promised land where his father was still living, but also where his brother lived. And we remember last week he sent messengers ahead to tell Esau that he was on his way. And the messengers came back and said, Esau's coming to meet you with 400 armed men. And Jacob is in utter fear thinking that this is the end of his life. So much so that he talks about how he's going to divide the camp into two so that when Esau overtakes them, he'll only hopefully kill half of his kids so that the other half would still be able to live on. Jacob is in his most vulnerable and desperate 
time here in chapter 32. And we concluded last week with, with Jacob sending all these extravagant gifts. You remember the rounds of rounds after gifts, the camels and the donkeys and the cows and the sheep and the goats trying to kill him with kindness as he keeps sending things over to his brother Esau. Well, the story picks up for us tonight in Genesis 32, verse 22. It says this, The same night... He arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok River. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. See, because we give this indication of the river that he crosses, we do actually know where Jacob and Esau met. Um, we have a picture, I believe, here of a map where Jacob and Esau met. So way up at the top there is where Jacob had journeyed to, where Laban lived. Now, when he comes way down at the bottom, you see how he comes down. The blue arrow going up is Esau traveling up from Mount Seir, the land of Edom, up to meet him. And so it's in what would be today modern-day Jordan, and the Jabbok River is a large tributary of the Jordan River. It actually flows east to west, and it goes into the Jordan River, which flows down into the Dead Sea. And Jacob finds himself here in this situation where Esau has ridden dozens of miles. He's journeyed hundreds of miles, and he sends his family on ahead of him. He sends them across to the other side of this river, and then we're told specifically that he was left alone. The text goes into such detail to make sure that we know. That's why it talks about the wives, the servants, the kids. Everything is moved across, and then Jacob comes back. All we know is that he's alone. Some scholars try and speculate why he's alone. They're like, did Jacob want to spend time in prayer? Did Jacob need his space? The answer is we don't know, and so we shouldn't read into the text. But Jacob sends his family to the other side, and it's clear that he was left alone. Verse 24, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. This mysterious man appears in the story of Jacob. He's identified from what Jacob's perspective would be. It's not Chicago. There's not streetlights. It's been dark out. And the idea here is of utter and pitch darkness. And he, we, he take, excuse me, the author makes sure that we know that Jacob's alone so we don't think this is one of his kids, that this is Esau, that this is any just normal person. Jacob is alone, yet suddenly a mysterious man appears and wrestles with Jacob all night long. It's interesting as well because wrestling as well as the Jabbok River in Hebrew are, oath, are both plays on Jacob's name itself. They use the same three letters but are just jumbled around a little bit. And so there's all this irony going on here. And we're going to see in this text as we, as we work through it that this man is not just any man. But this man is a physical manifestation of God. Something that we call in the Old Testament a theophany. An appearance of God in the flesh. And this is actually the second time in scripture that we see this happen. The first time was when God appeared to Abraham as they journeyed along and he prophesied and told them that when he would return in a year that Sarah would have a child. We see that this is from God, not only from the text, but actually from this event that's recorded for us in Hosea chapter 12. Hosea chapter 12, verses 3 and 4, it says this, that in the womb, talking about Jacob, he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood he strove with God. He strove with the angel of God, and he 
prevailed. Now, it's interesting here that scholars point out that this defining moment of Jacob's life starts with a wrestling match. Because in a sense, Jacob's been wrestling his entire life, right? In the womb, his name literally means one who grasps the heel. And he grasped hold of his brother. He was wrestling with him. He wrestled his birthright and the blessing from his brother. He wrestled the stone off of the well to impress what would become his wife, Rachel. He wrestled in negotiations with Laban. And now at the defining moment of his life, he's wrestling with God. And while we don't know why Jacob stayed alone, we don't know what he was planning on doing. What this passage teaches us is not just about Jacob, but it teaches us even more about God. And tonight, as we look at this passage, we're going to look at three truths of what happens when we meet with God. Three truths of what happens when we meet with God. And the first is this, is that God takes the initiative. That God takes the initiative. The text has been so clear that Jacob is left alone. Yet out of nowhere, with no proper doing, with nothing brought about by Jacob himself, a man who is, a, who is God himself appears and wrestles all night long with Jacob. It's interesting, isn't it, that God waited till Jacob was at the end of his rope to appear to him. Right? Jacob, the schemer, the trickster, had spent 20 years of his life deceiving people to get what he wanted. And last week we looked at, he finally calls out for the first time in in chapter 32, God, deliver me, deliver me. He's admitted his helplessness before God. And when he finally admitted his helplessness, it's when God took the initiative and showed up into his life. See, it's often when we are at our most vulnerable that God shows up in our lives. Isn't it? It's often when we seem to be at our very end, when we're at our most vulnerable, that God shows up. One pastor that I was reading this week says this. He says, our American dream is to live in our strength, but God's dream is that we live in our weakness. Because it's often in our weaknesses where God will show up. And when God shows up in our lives, it's him who takes the initiative towards us. That's the essence of what grace means. That grace is something that God gives and God brings towards us. It's not something that we work toward or ever deserve, but it's all of God's taking the initiative and moving towards his people. But if you're like me, when knowing that God takes the initiative, I always try and rush God's activity. Don't you? Sometimes I read this story and I'm like, God, why couldn't you show up to Jacob when he was like 15 and this whole story would have been so much cleaner and easier? We're like, why didn't you just show up then? And if you're like me, we so often try and rush God's activity in our world. We so often try and rush that God, God, I have family members, I have friends who don't know you. Would you just hurry up? Would you hurry up? You want to save them. Would you hurry up and do it? What this text is a reminder of is that we can trust in God and we can be patient. Because we know it's God who takes the initiative to move towards people. And we're called to trust in that. But God waited till Jacob was at his most desperate time to meet with him. It's why one of the things when I pray for people who are far from God, it's a scary thing to pray, but I pray it sometimes. It's a, God, do whatever it takes to get a hold of that person's life. 
That's a scary prayer, especially when it's someone you love. Because when you genuinely pray for it to do whatever it takes, most of the time, it will take breaking people's lives down till they're at a place that they would be able to hear God when he moves towards them. But it's a reminder as well that we cannot manipulate God's presence or activity in our world. Right? We cannot manipulate God's presence or activity. God is God. And he takes the initiative towards us. In our desperate time, in our state of need, he moves towards us. And as we're going to see, as Jacob wrestles with God, that when we meet God, we will never be the same. When we meet with God, we can never be the same. Verse 25. It says, a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. So they're setting up this, this tension here. It's an all-night wrestling match. Last week, we looked at kind of this long, laid-out Esau getting gifts over and over and over again. I was joking with one of our staff members today. Maybe the two of us should get up on stage and wrestle for 10 hours. You'd be like, yeah, that, that sounds exhausting, right? Like, but that's what this picture of is, this utter on and on and on and on. And then there's tension comes in because suddenly the sun is rising. As we know, when the sun starts to rise, this man will be able to be identified by Jacob, this mystery man. It says this, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. One scholar says that this is the idea of like the softest touch possible. He just simply nicked it. He touched it. It wasn't like some hard punch, but it was a divine touch on the hip that, that hurts Jacob and dislodged his hip from him. Verse 26, then Jacob said, excuse me, then the man said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. This indicates that Jacob had some idea as to the identity of this man, right? You asked for a blessing from someone who is greater or more superior than you. It's why fathers bestowed a blessing onto their sons. Sons don't bless their fathers in the Old Testament times, right? It's a blessing. The greater passes it on to someone else. Jacob clearly is seeing himself as the inferior person, the inferior one, and so he longs for a blessing, it's interesting as well, isn't it? In Jacob's cry for a blessing that's this, the only blessing he's ever gotten in his life is when he deceived someone else into giving to him. The only blessing he's ever received was from his father and his father thought he was giving it to someone else. They didn't even, he didn't even know it was Jacob. And so he cries out for this blessing from him. So the man replies in verse 27, and he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men, and you have prevailed. See, in their times, much more so than in our culture today, your name was a reflection of your character. And names carry great significance, as, as you may remember. It's why Jacob's father, Isaac, was called Isaac because his name literally means laughter. And it was his mom's response when God told them that Isaac would be born. Jacob's name means one who grabs the heel because that's how he was born, as a grabber. And he's lived up to his name as a deceiver, a schemer, a trickster in life. 
And so God comes in and he says, your name is no longer the deceiver, the trickster, but instead your name is now Israel. The meaning of Israel, as he explains, is someone who strives with God. Someone who strives with God. This name change, especially since it's such a drastic name change, indicates this huge reversal and change of character that's happening in Jacob's life. See, when God changed Abraham's name, he went from Abram to Abraham. It was just minor and rhetorical more. This name change is more due to someone who we've looked at in our Sunday morning series this fall, from Saul to Paul. A total reversal of name Saul, who was trying to kill Christians in the book of Acts to one who was the greatest missionary and church planner our world has ever known. That's the kind of transformation that God is bringing about in Jacob's life. He's going from a schemer looking to do life on his own to someone who has now wrestled and striven with God and has prevailed. It indicates this profound character change that's taking place in Jacob's life. Verse 29, then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. See, in their time, knowing a name held a certain power over someone. And when you knew someone's name, you knew things about them. And so he asks for this man's name, and he basically is saying, I'm not going to give it to you. It's reminiscent of what happens in Judges chapter 13, when the angel of the Lord appears to Samson's parents, and Samson's dad's response is, please tell me your name. And the angel's response is, I'm not going to tell you because my name is too wonderful for you. It's too wonderful for you to comprehend. It's the same idea of God being so great, so wonderful that we couldn't even comprehend his name. The second truth that we see when we meet with God, the second truth is that God transforms us. That God transforms us. When we truly meet with him, God changes our lives. No one can truly meet with God and leave the same way. No one can truly meet with God and leave the same. And it indicates that, that in our helplessness that we need God to transform us, but so often in our world, rather than looking to God for the transformation that we need in our lives, we try and change ourselves. Don't we? Our world is always trying to change itself. I was looking this weekend at the, the, the best-selling books on Amazon recently. So many of them are self-help books, self-help books. I wanted to look up how many, it just said 100,000 plus. I said, all right, so that's a lot, right? A lot of self-help books. Now, please hear me. I'm not saying that everything contained in any book labeled in the self-help section is evil or wrong, right? There's things in there that can be helpful, that can be appropriate, that can be life skills that people can use to learn. But the thing is this, why are there so many written and why are so many hundreds and thousands and millions of Americans buying them? Because they realize that something's wrong in their life and it needs to change and we think we can change it ourselves. And so we read some inspiring books to help us change. Oftentimes the most troubling of those books are books that bring Christian concepts and ideas into self-help as well and they start to mix the two together. So often in those books, the, the, uh, this phrase comes up that, that I read of one of review of a self-help book this week that says that so often in these books, what the authors put out is this curated imperfection in their lives. 
I love that idea. They don't show the whole messy side of themselves, right? The real us that if other people saw, they would probably shrink back in horror and awe. But they put out a little imperfection in a very curated and pretty way that says, hey, look at me. Look at how pretty my imperfections actually are that I can work on. And you can do this too in your life. And what happens is so many people read those books and they read them and they go, but that doesn't get to the real issue. It doesn't get to the real issue, which is our hearts. See, we don't just need behavioral change. We need heart change. And none of us is powerful enough to change our own hearts. We don't need to manage our sin, but we need it to be removed and to be forgiven by someone else. We need a transformation that only God can bring about in our lives. I was reading a book recently. I haven't quite finished it yet. But the book is called Save Me From Myself. And it's by a man named Brian Welch, who most of you probably don't know. I didn't know either, um, so I was exposed to a story of his a little while ago. Right? He is one of the most, I guess, successful heavy metal musicians in the world. I'm shocked you all didn't know who he was. I would have had you all as a heavy metal kind of crowd. But he says that his life for so long was just consumed with his career. But along with the stumblings of, as you can probably imagine, being an extremely successful rock star and having all of the money in the world came all the things with it as well. And he became addicted first to alcohol and then it led to lighter drugs till he was hooked on serious drugs. He talked about how his, his ex-wife who had custody of the daughter actually died from an overdose, but it still wasn't enough to scare him. He, he says in the book how he would wake up in the morning, eat breakfast, do drugs, and then wake up his daughter to take her to school. And he said he just felt this loneliness, this emptiness that I tried to stop. I saw what it did to people I loved, and I tried to stop, and I couldn't. But he was gaining more and more wealth, more and more notoriety. And so he went into business with a couple of real estate agents in California to help acquire more properties as a business venture for him. So one afternoon, one of the real estate brokers that he was working with texted him and said, hey, listen, I, I don't do this. In fact, I've never done this before. But I just felt like I wanted to share this with you. And he sent him a Matthew eleven twenty eight: Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And he said that, that he went to church with this man a few weeks later, and he met Jesus. He said he prayed a prayer to believe in Jesus. And then he said, then he went home, put his daughter in front of the TV, and did drugs. Not how most people do right after they get saved. They're like, wait, what? What happened? Right? And he did that for about a week, he said. He lived life the normal way till finally he said he was sitting in his house with the drugs lined out in front of him, ready to him. And he cried out, Jesus, if you're real, I can't stop this myself. I need your help. And he said Jesus met him that day. And it was over a decade ago that he's been clean He's become a father to his daughter and that his life has been transformed. See, what we need, no matter how deep you are in sin, and maybe it's not that sin, but in the other sins of life that we find ourselves in, no self-help, no behavior modification is enough to bring about what our hearts really need, which is transformation by Jesus alone. Tonight, if you're trying to fix your own life, would you trust in the only one who can transform it? 
If you're trying to find a fix for the brokenness, the emptiness that you know is there and you're just not sure what to do about it, tonight Jesus wants to meet with you and he wants to and he has the power to transform your life. Verse 30. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face yet my life has been delivered. He renames this place. And the significance of this event that, that he sees God, wrestles with God, and lives becomes more amazing as we read throughout Scripture. In Exodus chapter 33, when, when, uh, when Moses asked to see God's glory, his response to him is, you cannot see my face and live. His glory would be too much for them to behold. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, after receiving the Ten Commandments, the glory of God is shown to the Israelites, and they said, how can we live after we have seen God in this way? In Judges 13, when Samson's parents meet and speak to the angel of the Lord, they think, we are going to surely die, for we have seen God. It shows the power and the awe of God, and Jacob recognizes the powerful significance of what event has just taken place that he has met face to face with God. Verse 31, the sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew on the thigh. When Jacob left the promised land in Genesis chapter 28, he left as the sun was going down and his first episode is in darkness. Now that he's wrestled with God, he's about to enter, to cross the river, to go back into the land as the sun is rising. There's a beautiful picture there of what God is doing. But notice Jacob's cry in verse 30. I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been delivered. Is Esau still there? Yes, is Esau, is his circumstances in life changed at all? Has the danger gone away? Could his very existence end that same morning? Yes, it could. But Jacob has been changed by God. And when we meet God face to face, the third truth of meeting with God is that God changes our perspectives. God changes our perspective. See, the, the battle that Jacob was facing he went into that night thinking it was purely a physical thing between him and his brother, that that was the greatest battle he faced. But the true battle that God was doing all along was the battle for Jacob's own heart. The true battle was for his own heart. And when we realize the state of our hearts, and if you're a follower of Jesus and you realize who holds your heart and that God is in control of your life, it can put the rest of our life into perspective. Because for Jacob, his circumstances hadn't changed. The difficulty was still there. He was going to what he thought maybe was his death of him and his family that day. But he proclaimed, I've been delivered. Because his perspective was changed once he had met God. See, we live our lives so often out of perspective, right? They say the closer you are to a problem, the harder it is to see around it. 
And for so many of us, when difficulty comes in our lives, if the only thing we see are the issues and the problems at hand, and we lose sight of God, we lose sight of his promises and the trust that we can have in him because all we see is the difficult circumstance that's facing us right in front of us. So much of our anxiety and worry in life is because we're focusing on the wrong thing. We're focusing on the issues that we're facing rather than on the God who can deliver us from those things. But when we meet God, he can change our perspective and it can give us courage and hope and trust no matter the situation. I've been a pastor now for uh, a little over 10 years and I genuinely think it's the greatest job in the world. I'm so thankful, um, thankful to God for the opportunity to do it. There's so many different things that I love about being a pastor, but for me, one of the things that I, I didn't realize what an amazing privilege that this would be over a decade ago when I started. But what, when you ask me what, what are some of the most, the sweetest moments of being a pastor, to me, they've been meeting with people and praying with them right before they go into medical procedures where they know their life may end. It's very sobering. Yet as a pastor, it's such a privilege to be called in by families, to meet with people on the precipice of what could be eternity for them. And I will tell you what, when you pray with people who know where their souls are hidden, it changes everything. When you pray with people who can look you in the eye and say, whether I wake up today or not, I know my life is in Jesus' hands. Friends, when we meet with God, it changes our perspective because I've also met with people who haven't had that truth in their life. And there's such fear of what could happen because they don't know the future and they don't know what would happen if they weren't going to wake back up. Friends, when we meet with God, our perspective is changed. Knowing Jesus changes everything about our lives. People who have met with God can say, as one of my favorite songs says, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, whatever happens to me, whatever happens, God has taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. That perspective can only happen with someone who's met God. Our souls are not well until they have met Jesus. But once they have, we can face even the most difficult circumstances of life, like Jacob has woken up and is headed into, but he faces it with peace because he has met God and it has changed his perspective. When we meet with God, we will never be the same. When Kristen Anderson was 17 years old. On the outside, most people thought that her life was good and she seemed like a happy teenage girl. But four friends close to her in her life had recently passed away and then her grandma had passed away after that. And she was struggling with deep depression when one evening she snuck out of her house, went to the train tracks that were behind her house and as a freight train ran by, went by she threw herself onto the train tracks. 
She was run over, it says, by 33 train cars going 55 miles an hour. But she woke up alive that night. She was taken to the hospital. The doctors weren't able to save her legs. They told her, you're going to be in a wheelchair for the rest of your life. She was bitter and angry and struggling with depression for several more years until she met Jesus. Until she met Jesus. And she realized that even though she would never walk again, she had a reason to live again. That Jesus hadn't, hadn't put her legs back together, but he had done even a greater work. He had transformed her heart. And I know Kristen's story because you can find it on the internet, but also because she was at school at the same time as I was at Moody Bible Institute. And as she was there, she studied and she started a ministry that reaches out to people who are struggling with, with depression and suicidal thoughts, specifically teenagers. Because her life seemed so helpless, so devoid of meaning until she met Jesus. See, when we meet with God, he transforms our lives so we will never be the same. Jacob met God. He wrestled him all night long and he left forever changed. The good news for you and I is we don't have to do an all night wrestling match with God. All we have to do is pray. The king of the universe the creator of our world is available to each and every one of us tonight, right now. He's willing and wants to transform our hearts and lives. He's done all that needs to be done. He's died for the cross on our sins. He defeated death by rising from the dead, and he calls on you simply to trust in him, to stop trying to fix yourself, but instead to meet with Jesus who will change your life. Friends, that opportunity is open for you tonight. Tonight, would you stop like Jacob did? Stop trying to do it on your own, but instead to meet with God and to surrender your life to him. God, we thank you that when we meet you, we are never the same. God, I thank you for the transforming work you've done in my own life God, that I was a sinner dead in my sin until I met you and you have changed my life. I know that's true for so many of us here tonight and we just cry out, thank you. Thank you for the transforming work that you've done in our lives. God, for anyone here tonight who has not met you, God, tonight would they cease their efforts of trying to fix themselves, trying to fill the void in their lives on their own. God, would they cry out to you? Would you be here tonight? Would you meet with us tonight? God, would you break down defenses? Would you change our hearts tonight? We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.